Thank you, Father. Dear Jesus, we read your words. Your servant John records in chapter 14, verse 25. These things I have spoken to you while I am still with you. But the Helper, the Holy Spirit, whom the Lord will send in my name, He will teach you all things and bring to your remembrance all that I have said to you. Peace I leave with you, my peace I give to you, not as the world gives do I give to you. Let not your heart be troubled, neither let them be afraid. But you heard, you heard me say to you, I am going away, and I, am, and I will come to you. If you loved me, you would have rejoiced, because I am going to the Father, and the Father is greater than I. And now I have told you before it takes place, so that when it does take place, you may believe. Jesus, we recognize that this promise is true for us now, that you made to your disciples before you left this earth, that you would send the third person of the Godhead, the Holy Spirit, to be our comforter, our guide, our teacher, our helper, to guide us into all truth. Holy Spirit, we rely on you to produce fruit from this message, to write the heart of these songs inside of us, to instruct us in the things that are so high above our understanding that it takes a miracle for us to grow in the knowledge of. Holy Spirit, we depend on You for the service to be meaningful beyond just words. Lord, I submit myself to You and pray that You would do that which no man can do, that You would transcribe the words of the living God onto our hearts as we study your holy truth. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. I invite you to turn to Psalm chapter 14. Second Sunday of the month, our Psalm a Month series continues with this installment, Psalm 14. The title of this message is The Wisdom Vacuum. The Wisdom Vacuum. The title reflects a concept that if there is no wisdom evident in a people, in a person, in a human heart, in a nation, something will rush in to fill that vacuum. The Bible describes it as foolishness. If there is no wisdom, there will be reasons, opinions offered. There will be goals, visions, worldviews. There will be ideas, there will be principles, but they will be foolish. The wisdom vacuum is always filled by sin, because we are sinners by nature. And it's much harder work, if you will, to walk in wisdom than it is to act like, pretend like, and be deceived that foolishness, trusting our own wayward heart, is the way to order our lives. Let's begin by reading these seven verses. Psalm 14 begins, the title is, To the Choir Master of David, telling us that this is a psalm meant to be sung again in a worship service, and the author is David. David writes, Psalm 14.1, The fool says in his heart, there is no God. They are corrupt, they do abominable deeds, there is none who does good. The Lord looks down from heaven on the children of man to see if there are any who understand, who seek after God. They have all turned aside. 
Together they have become corrupt. There is none who does good, not even one. They have no knowledge, all the evildoers who eat up my people as they eat bread and do not call upon the Lord. There they are in great terror, verse 5. For God is with the generation of the righteous. You would shame the plans of the poor, but the Lord is His refuge. Oh, that salvation for Israel would come out of Zion. When the Lord restores the fortunes of His people, let Jacob rejoice, let Israel be glad. The wisdom vacuum. Wisdom in biblical literature, especially wisdom literature, Ecclesiastes, Psalms, and Proverbs, is a description of a concept that I'm going to offer a definition as follows. Wisdom, biblical wisdom, means this. It's a quest for the order and meaning of everything in relationship to the nature and character of God. Biblical wisdom. A quest for the order and meaning of everything in relationship to the nature and character of God. Or a little bit more succinctly, the meaning of everything in relationship to God. As you read through Proverbs, the author leaves no stone unturned. He comments on the most trivial matters to the most significant, sometimes back to back. And you can see demonstrated in his will to apply the truth of God, this confession. The word of God is absolutely sufficient. And from the smallest detail to the greatest, what we would consider meaningful notion or task, God's word applies. And when we apply it well, it gives us the order and meaning of all things. If we abandon this quest, what is left? Atheism. An atheism of the heart, of foolishness that would arise and would find order and meaning in something else besides God's Word. We must be so diligent if we are to follow the model of Scripture to hold our heart, our mind, our thinking, our intellect, our will, our decisions, our vision of the future, our worldview, the knowledge that we take in, retain, and sort in certain categories in our head. We must be so diligent to be about that duty with this quest in mind. How is this piece of information? How is this life circumstance? How is this ideal or proposal to find its order and meaning in relationship to God? If we abandon that, to that degree, we become atheistic in our confession, in our heart, and in our lifestyle. When I think about the applicability of Scripture, like Scripture applies to our daily life, there are many naysayers, fools indeed. There are those who would tell us that the Scripture was much more relevant for the people of the day that it was written for. These primitive, ancient, you know, uh, agrarian types, people who were, you know, putting their hand to the plow and very basic and simplistic in their understanding. You know, in this case, it almost seems the opposite is true. It almost seems that Psalm 14 in some way was, was written out of time and written specifically for a day that you and I experience when we walk out of this building into culture and realize the thorough saturation of atheistic intention all across the board in America today. Now, this... Psalm applied equally in David's time as it does ours. But as I see the need for it today 
it just strikes me how God's word is absolutely timeless. In David's day, in David's day, there was plenty of gods and probably very few who would not affirm some god. They affirmed maybe false ones, Baal, Ashtoreth, the gods of the nations, the one that they falsely attributed the prosperity that they saw tangibly in this life to their wicked neighbors and what have you. This was rampant in David's day. Even Saul sought advice from mediums, who was the king at the time. Saul flirted with other gods. He denied the one true God. There's plenty of gods. So why would David speak to the heart of sin as atheistic? These are some of the questions that arise. And we'll tackle them in due course. But I'd like to open the rest of this message with a story for you. And this is just from my imagination. And I'd like to bring you along in your imagination with me for just a moment. Indulge me, if you will, by imagining a street in a beautiful suburban town. You drive down a couple side streets, and the speed limits get decreasingly lower until you get to one of those 25, 30 mile an hour zones, and there's a row of beautiful, newly built homes in a crescent shape along a suburban drive. The lawns are freshly manicured. They're beautiful. They're all in a pie shape because of the way the land lays, and down at the base of that pie is a commons area with a playground. Now, this Suburban areas populated by the demographic you might think typical of uh, suburban, outside of the city type of place. There's young families there, and each of them has a few kids, invariably. So the kids, they all get together, and they play in the common place. They play in that play place as long as their parents will let them. Over the years, these children develop a bond. They share things together, their playtime, they swap ideas, things they have in common, things they hate about school, things they hate about their parents. And as the years progress, the things that they dislike and hate become more of a bond between them than just having innocent childlike fun. It gets worse and worse, and the older children start to talk to the younger ones, saying, you know, in this playground is our only opportunity to be free from homework, teachers, parents, authority, This is the only time when we can really be ourselves. This is so much fun. And it isn't fair that we have to go home each night to those houses, go back into the prison that our houses are, and what our parents will make us do, and the homework, and the chores, and the curfew. One day, we'll be free from this place. That day came sooner than later. The older children, the 8 and 10-year-olds, were able to convince the 5 and 6 and 7-year-olds And one day, at the break of dawn, about 15 children packed their backpacks in their kitchens early in the morning before their parents arrived. And in all of the wisdom that they could muster, they would put a box of Pop-Tarts next to their baseball card collection, maybe a change of clothes if they were smarter than the others, put the backpack on their back, and waited down just a little bit, meet in the playground. All 15 of them arrived right on time, and in a single file line, they headed out for the railroad tracks. The railroad tracks were just a few hundred yards off of a main drag, and they figured they could walk in the ditch and remain undetected. Their plan worked well for three days. On the third day, the last Pop-Tart, the last Dorito bag was absolutely gone, and they had come to another town. And in this town, there was a gas station on the corner. Well, on the way, there was a few children who were growing tired, but they loved the new freedom that they had. There was young, one young man, however, who just couldn't quite keep up with the rest of the children. He would walk a little slower and a little slower, 
And if you watched him for any length of time, every once in a while he would glance over his shoulder. And there was a look in his eyes more of regret than fear. More of remorse than fear or defiance the way the other children had. Well, this guy would be constantly hearing from his friends, hey, keep up, come on, you're slowing us down. We got to get out of here. And he would quicken his pace and rejoin the group. Finally, the group arrives at a gas station and they devise a plan. We're all out of food and we're pretty hungry. There's only one person working in this gas station. Sooner or later, he'll have to leave or do something. And as they kind of scoped out the scene, they figured out that he would probably empty the trash bins and maybe they could duck inside the store at that time. They hid along the side of the store. Sure enough, the attendant went out to change the trash bins. They set the lookout, the straggler kid, by the door, and the rest of them went in and as fast as they could began stuffing their bags with candy. The lookout, the straggler, he began to open up his pack. He got a little distracted, and he pulled out three birthday cards he had gotten from his parents. He opened one as he sat there on the street on the sidewalk. It said, we love you, son, and hope this book soon becomes your favorite. They had given him a Bible for his fifth birthday. He had just learned to read. He opened up his next birthday card, and inside it said, proud of you, and pray you'll soon become the godly man we're raising you to be. These were a treasure to him that he had not told his friends that he kept in his bag. The third card he opened, it said, Remember, son, God's favor is a far greater gift than the presents you'll open today. He had a faraway look in his eyes, that look of regret again. He failed to notice the attendant had entered the building. He had not opened the door and sounded the buzzer that would let his friends know to act as you were, the attendant caught all his buddies red-handed stuffing as much candy as they possibly could into their backpacks. Well, as soon as they realized they were caught, they were in such a confusion and disarray, a few of them left their bags behind, they rallied their friends, they yelled, and they all ran out, got away, what they felt like scot-free. They went around the corner at a safe distance, they paused out of breath, and then they all sat down to have a meeting with the lookout kid. Why didn't you open the door to warn us? At a sheepish look in his face. I saw you through the glass. You were reading something in your bag. Show me your backpack. They rip open his backpack, and they see the three birthday cards. They open them and look at him with disdain and resentment. They read those words of his parents in a mocking voice, and tear up one card after the other in front of them. Each of them takes a punch at the young man, and they all head off and lead him in the dust. The straggler, now realizing the plight he's in, walks back to the gas station. He goes through the door, and he apologizes to the attendant and says, what we did was wrong. My parents told me God's word says we're not supposed to steal. Can I borrow your phone? The man says yes, hands him his phone, he types in the number of his father, and it begins to ring. In Psalm 14, verse 1, the fool, like the children, have said in their heart, there is no God. There is no authority. We will be free without him. They are corrupt. They do abominable deeds. There is none who does good. There's four words I'd like to give you to help sort this sermon to help sort this psalm in our head, what this psalm explains to us. The first is sinner, the second is sin, the third is subset, and the fourth is salvation. 
first in regards to the sinner. Psalm 14 tells us that the sinner, of the sinner, it speaks of the atheistic nature of the sinful heart. The fool has said in his heart, there is no God. They are corrupt, they do abominable deeds, there is none who does good. Now, for the adults in the room, I want to give you quickly five categories of atheism to show you that no sinner escapes the label of atheism. Atheism is the nature of the sinful heart, and every man is included, every man, all mankind, every man, woman, and child is included under the heading of the fool in this psalm, because we are all born with atheistic intentions, that is, we confess there is no God. However, on the outside, we wear different masks, that is, our atheism takes different outworkings than the condition of our heart, which is exactly the same in every case. First of all, there's a philosophical atheism. And this is the most dramatic and easy to, I guess, oppose example in society today. These are men like Dawkins and Hitchens, Richard Dawkins. You know, they're acclaimed and famous atheists, evolutionists, that write actively, vitriolically opposed to religion. Or institutions like the ACLU, American Civil Liberties Union, who has lost its way and sees in its duty, the eradication of godliness in all of its affairs or legislative endeavors. And then also there's another group that's come to prominence lately, Freedom From Religion Foundation, or some such thing. These are the easy whipping boys for the church, for atheism. They're the the philosophical atheists. They're the ones who say that the understanding of reality is actually impaired by the notion of God. And they boldly are consistent with their heart's condition in saying there is no God. In fact, the notion of a God is damaging to society and distorts reality. But before we call the kettle black and say, like the Pharisee would, oh, I'm not an atheist. Notice that there are other categories of atheism. There's a philosophical atheist. There's also social atheism. And this is what our culture, the secular West, has drifted into these days. We see it all around us. Social atheism, the network of relationships in society are established with no acknowledgement of God. And I'm telling you, this is prevalent at every turn. And if we do not discern it, it may be because we've united our heart with atheism around us. Relationships between government and the individual are perverted by this notion that there really isn't any God. Thus, government is gone to acquire indefinite power. And we've conferred upon government the very attributes of God, trusting them to be omniscient, trusting them to be omnipotent, trusting them with our welfare, security, and the future, central planning, and the like. A social atheism has permeated our culture, Western society, and we've left the notion that the network of relationships among peoples ought to be forged out of the acknowledgement of God. Marriage has fallen on disrepair to the extent we're almost willing now, and in some states it's passed, to redefine it according to terms that do not acknowledge that God has designed specifically and exclusively the terms of marriage. Transnational government institutions arise, thereby confessing that there is no God who rules over the affairs of man, and so we must substitute some committee, some United Nations attempt to ensure our own peace. Time and time again we see this around us, this Social atheism, if we cannot see it, maybe because we've joined it in our heart. The Supreme Court rules over and over again 
And oftentimes their opinions betray a lack of faith, no acknowledgement of God, but they are almost effectively impeachable. Why? Because we live among social atheists in a socially atheistic culture. That's not all, though. There's also virtual atheism. And this is the one perhaps every person is most guilty of. Virtual atheism, this atheism that says in the heart there is no God, could be described perhaps as living as though God cannot see, He does not care, He will not judge, and He has not spoken. Any or all of those things. Living as though God cannot see what I do, He does not care even if He does see. Living as though there is no judge of the universe, there is no reckoning, there is no final day, there is no great white throne judgment. There is none of these things. He has not spoken. He has not given us an infallible word by which to, to measure righteousness by. And how many of us are guilty of that kind of action, attitude, and behavior that confesses in the heart of it, there is no God who sees. You start to see how all of us are guilty in our sin of atheism. Then there's practical atheism, that is, atheism in practice, assuming that we can design, conceive, create, or reorder the terms of who God is by our own design. This places us as the arbiter of a fairy tale and denies God altogether. It's practical atheism. And finally, there's compliant atheism. Just one more phrase as a catch-all to show that all of us are guilty of what the psalmist declares is the root and nature of sin. Compliant atheism, those who are deceived or coerced by the atheism of the day. These are the various outworkings of the same heart condition. The heart of a fool who has left, who has left the pursuit of wisdom, this quest for order and meaning in everything in relationship to the nature of God. And what has rushed into that vacuum? The foolishness of heart that says there is no God. And secondly, what does it lead to? It leads directly to sin. They are corrupt. They do abominable deeds. There is none who does good. Think of our story. Those kids imagined that they would live in a peaceful, self-indulgent freedom. They never imagined themselves beating up one of their best friends, I'm sure, or tearing up something that was precious to him, disregarding it. But their sin in denying their parents' authority and living outside of God's covenant terms for their lives, they began to show that disorder in other areas, and they began to display their rebellion in corruption. And this is the same in our hypothetical story as it is in the world around. If we say in our heart there is no God, our deeds will become corrupt and abominable before Him. And there will be an increasing perversion that is evident in our land and certainly in our hearts. Number two, we just discussed sinner and the atheistic nature of the sinful heart. Number two, word is sin, the root and branch of corruption. Gross perversion, as I've just mentioned, is no shocking surprise to the diligent student of the Word of God. Because instead of the grace of God, or I should say, instead what is most apparent and amazing to us as we see the depth of depravity we're capable of, especially when you read the story of Noah, what's more amazing is that we don't see more perversion. God's means of grace and governors in our lives has kept us from the outworking as bad as we could be based on the trajectory of our heart. But as the Bible describes the perversion of heart that replaces anything with the true nature of God on the inside, it describes the outworking, the sin, the corruption, the abominable deeds as perversion, an absolute turning on its head 
of God's definitions of righteousness, peace, joy, value, security, hope, love, all of these things become perverted. Terms like masochism, suicide, and even cannibalism well describe the principle behind sin and the root and branch of corruption. You see in this passage that the first thing that man violates is the first table of the law. Think of the Ten Commandments and how they're ordered. First of all, you should have no other gods before me. I am the one who brought you out of Egypt. Have I not proved myself to you enough already? And the miraculous salvation I worked from even your earthly oppressors, you shall have no golden calf, no other God before me, no concept of God, no rejection of my will and commands. Secondly, you shall not make unto me any graven image. Do not bear false witness. Remember the Sabbath day to keep it holy. All of these commandments are vertically oriented. They are our relationship to God defined. Live in light of them. But as we see, when the fool says in the heart, there is no God, they are the first commandments that are violated. They are corrupt. They do abominable deeds. There is none who does good. The Lord looks down in verse 2, from heaven on the children of man to see if there are any who understand, any who seek after God, any who still value and love wisdom, the quest for order and meaning in relationship to God. How can I have your favor, O Lord? How can I, a broken, sinful man, be in your presence and not incinerated in judgment? That question is no longer on the heart and lips of man. Instead, when God looks down, he sees none who understand and none who seek after him. They've forgotten the first table of the law. They began to raise up other gods before him, graven images and the like. They've lied to themselves and to others, and the Sabbath day and what it represents is utterly gone from their experience. Verse 3, they have all turned aside together. They have become corrupt. There is none who does good, not even one. And in the, in the Hebrew, I'm told, according to some of the commentaries I read, that this phrase, all turned aside, It means like spoiled fruit, a stench, an odorous, rotten mass. They have all corrupted each other. They have become so much decayed matter. And this is the state of the human heart when they continue in this notion that there is no God. So that is the violation, first of all, of the first half of the law. But secondly, they begin to violate the second. This Uh, This sin, the root and branch of corruption, if the root is a violation of who God is, then the branch of corruption begins to show up in their relationships one to another. Remember the second table of law, commandments 5 through 10, that you shall ultimately, or in summary, love your neighbor as yourself for the golden rule, but specifically honor your father and mother, do not commit adultery, do not steal, those types of things. Those become violated as sin becomes prevalent in an atheistic heart. Verse 4, they have no knowledge, all the evildoers, who eat up my people as they eat bread, and do not call upon the Lord. There they are in great terror, for God is with the generation of the righteous. You would shame the plans of the poor. Notice these two phrases. These, These who are corrupted with a heart that says there is no God or has denied Him in any way, They eat up my people, God says. They mistreat each other. Their face towards those who have a certain favor with the Lord is one of resentment and violence. They destroy them. Their hearts are turned against them. 
They shame them. They make fun of them. And remember in our story, they turned on the child who is finding refuge and consolation in the words of his parents. And so Christ says they will turn on you, believer, if you find refuge and solace in the Lordship of Christ. When Jesus said, they hated me, and so they will hate you, he he was serious. The church today does not receive as much hatred, perhaps, from the world as we ought. Maybe because our will, our lifestyle, the way we live our lives betrays too much atheism, too much agreement with the order of the day. Perhaps we've left too much of searching for wisdom behind. What is the order and meaning of all things in relationship to God? What we can bet on and count on in a world as wicked as ours is if you begin to make an ark, your neighbors will surely vilify you and make fun of you. You idiot. Why would you spend a hundred years in that God-forsaken boat when there hasn't so much as a rainstorm to float a piece of wood, let alone this structure 300 cubits wide or what have you? Noah, no doubt, was the brunt of such animosity at that time, just as the young child in our story was, and we are promised as his disciples. It's very simple, though, why man's heart is faced against God's people. Think of it this way. God has made man in his own image. And if we're rebelling against him, doesn't it only stand to reason that we then begin to rebel against each other? Because it only follows that mankind in rejecting God would take out his enmity, his anger, his animosity, his resentment, his uh, vitriol on the most tangible evidence in his experience of the image of God. And the most probable victims are the vulnerable and the godly. You and I are made in the image of God. So when we turn our back on God, is it any wonder why it leads to a culture of death? We hate the image of God, Thus, we begin to turn on ourselves. And the first victims are always the vulnerable and the godly. The vulnerable because they're the most easy to take advantage of. Like in this section, the poor. The poor in Scripture are those who are of no value by earthly measure. They are leased by worldly standards. It's not just poor in monetary means, although it could be. It's those who are most vulnerable. They're the least by worldly measure. And they become the victims of the animosity of an atheistic heart that turns against God. Think of abortion in our day. The most innocent and defenseless of all of us are utterly, in a vast holocaust, eradicated from this land. And this has happened under our noses for some years to the tune of millions and millions of children. How could a culture breed such death We've turned our face on the image of God and we've taken it out on those who now bear his image. But the godly, those who look and act and display the most of God's character, they will also be the brunt of persecution. Just like the boy in our story, as soon as he returned to the heart of his parents, he became the object of the resentment of those around him. People take on, do these things and willfully make decisions that people's very lives depend on. They do it as flippantly, and it becomes as commonplace in an atheistic-hearted culture as their daily meal. 
In other words, you get to a point when you've embraced what the fool says in your heart and in your context to such a high degree that the innocent die around you and the poor are taken advantage of and the vulnerable and godly are disparaged and it's so commonplace that you don't even think about it. It's just like eating. It's as commonplace and flippant as your daily meal and just taking on the duties of day-to-day survival. Now, you can see with the vantage point of Scripture that this is a fearful place to be. When you have lost the fear of the Lord, no honor and respect for His dictates and truth anymore, that is a fearful proposition to find yourself. Because it's so deceptive, and you're so anesthetized by your behavior, and you're so foolish as to deny any wisdom that would hold you accountable, the whole society can turn aside, become rotted together, become utterly corrupt. Thank God for His Word that can cut like a sword and can reveal these things to us so that we know how to pray and hold our own hearts accountable to truth. In verse 4, Have they no knowledge, all the evildoers who eat up my people as they eat bread and do not call upon the Lord? Verse 5, They are in great terror, for God is with the generation of the righteous. They are in a fearful place. If you do not fear the Lord, you ought to fear the great you ought to have the greatest terror of all. But unfortunately, because you do not fear him, you're also denied that soulish pain, if you will. If you drift too far from God's precepts, the fear of him is like pain for the soul. It reminds you that something's wrong. But power and pursuit of atheistic heart intentions becomes the painkiller for a society, and thus unchecked human power and exercising it, doing whatever we want, whenever we want, God's law notwithstanding, this kind of approach to our life will actually, in the end, harden our heart, kill the conscience, and this unchecked acquisition of human power and total disregard for God's authority will become the carry-on for the maggot of pride. And this fearful proposition will fall upon a dark land. We will show this in other ways. We'll be frantic for the constant reassurance that the future is ours to predestine. We will try to play God. We will try to do all these things to shore up the future. Power, in every case, will try to acquire to ensure that we will be all right and we'll try to prepare against every eventuality and contingency, pretending that we're omniscient and, and omnipotent. But in the end, it's a terrifying, judgment-deserving place that we would find ourselves in if we abandon the pursuit of wisdom. We discuss sin and sinner. And the third category I'd like to discuss is subset. The enlightened poor, those who know their state before God and who are crying out on His mercy alone for His favor, or as they're referred to in verse 5, the generation of the righteous, they are a subset of the universally corrupt mankind. They themselves are corrupt too. They are well acquainted with this atheism of heart. They know that they were fools at one time, but now they cry out, Save me! Save us! Deliver me! I beseech you, O Heavenly Father, Judge of the universe, Great God, Creator of all, that somehow in your loving kindness and favor you could find room to be pleased with me again. 
These of old were the ones who obeyed the heart of the sacrificial system in the Old Testament in faith of the coming Messiah. And these in the new are ones who find their life hid in Jesus Christ. They are the subset. The enlightened poor, the generation of the righteous, are a subset of universally corrupt mankind. This chapter is so important to biblical theology, that is, the truth of God and His Word. Psalm 14 is quoted in Romans 3, verses 10 through 12. You can refer to it later. Paul uses this chapter to show that everyone is a sinner and all fall short, and everyone is a hell-deserving, atheistic-hearted individual until they throw themselves on the mercy of God, and then they're justified by His blood, not by their works. This psalm recalls Genesis chapter 6, where we read earlier. It recalls a day when God looked down from heaven as it were and saw only one righteous man, and everyone, including Noah, should he not trust God's covenants, was judged corrupt. And in that day, it was even worse externally. Their heart was even more on their sleeve. But God instituted, according to his rainbow covenant, dictates that would keep man from becoming as wicked as he was then. Nevertheless, let it be known that it is only the remnant who are the subset and only Christ who differentiates any righteousness from the heart atheism the world over. Are you in that subset today? Are you a believer? Are you the enlightened poor? Are you one who is perhaps judged least by worldly measure, but like the boy in our story, is willing to return to the heart of Father God, even if it means rejection by 14 of your friends? The Bible is so specific to tell us that the path and the gate are very narrow, and few there be that find it, but those that do realize that their only hope is in the mercy and the grace of God that would come through as we see his intentions for self-disclosure through Zion. And we'll read that in a moment. As I mentioned, this chapter becomes a biblical proof text to show that we are all caught in sin. Also, I want to highlight that the righteousness, or the righteous, the righteous generation in this section of Scripture are not distinguished by self-contained or self-generated virtue. As we read in verse 5, For the Lord is with the generation of the righteous. You would shame the plans of the poor, but the Lord is his refuge. Verse 7, O the salvation of Israel. O that salvation for Israel would come out of Zion. When the Lord restores the fortunes of his people, let Jacob rejoice, let Israel be glad. It's important to notice that these qualifications that describe the righteous, first, the generation, the inheritance is what makes the righteous righteous. They're in the lineage. They received an inheritance. It's not something that they worked for and earned. Just as Christ, when he died, is our inheritance and our own righteousness. Later, it speaks to God's elect, his chosen, called out ones, ransomed and redeemed bride by his ultimate will and choosing when he refers to Jacob and Israel, his children, those that he calls out. These are the righteous, not distinguished by their own merit, but distinguished by God's sovereign grace. This is the subset, the enlightened poor, those who are least by worldly measure, but have, through Christ, ultimately received favor in His sight. And the fourth word is salvation. We discuss sinner and the nature of the sin and, and, and then how the sin takes root and branch. And We discussed 
that the only hope is for those who find their future hinges on the work of God and not any works of man. And then finally, we see salvation that is hoped for, proclaimed and prophesied, and encouraged to be the light at the end of this dark picture at the close of Psalm 14. It says in verse 6, You would shame the plans of the poor, but the Lord is his refuge. Oh, that salvation for Israel would come out of Zion when the Lord restores the fortunes of his people. Let Jacob rejoice. Let Israel be glad. Salvation is accompanied by a faith that affirms future vindication. Faith affirming a future vindication. Salvation for you and me is absolutely evident in your heart in that Christ has made you born again. But it will be ultimately evident in your experience when you are no longer the downtrodden, the persecuted, and the poor. But you are ultimately saved and the fullness of what Jesus died to purchase is evident in you obtaining eternal life with Him forever. Everything that Jesus died for is and must be and will be on that final day perfect. Salvation for us is a faith that affirms a future vindication. We might be the object of wrath, the wrath of an atheistic worldview around us. We might bear the brunt of persecution, but we will be vindicated in the future. We will stand with our Lord Christ as conquering warriors. And there is no longer the downtrodden, poor adjectives to describe us, as you read in Revelation, the triumphal procession that accompanies Jesus Christ on his white horse on that final day. There are swords in hand, and there is triumph, and there is victory, and there is an utter destruction of all of sin and death itself and everyone who did not affirm that he is Lord, is compiled in that dustbin of history that is seen in such poignant terms of justice that the wrath of God begins to stamp out the injustice of man's heart till the blood rises to the bridal height of the horses. It is serious. God's terms are serious. You can only get away from running from the playground for so long. Well, three days of supposed freedom in your sin give you the confidence to live a life of rebellion against your Father God. The roots of sin are there when we are born, and they take shape very quickly. Children, if you are in this room listening, your parents are God's delegated authority over you. If you ever have a moment when you despise that authority, do not run away. Run towards them and confess that as sin. Or you will one day become, if you continue to disregard your parents and live in opposition and rebellion to God's authority by not honoring them, you will one day become one who is so reprobate of mind that they will utterly have no capacity of understanding God himself. It is dangerous, dangerous to live in a society that does not honor father and mother. If you live in that mindset long enough, you will become the hardened fool who says in his heart, there is no God, they are corrupt, they do abominable deeds, there is none who does good. I want to close on the hopeful note though, following the psalmist pattern. 
if you find yourself there revisiting the true refuge, as we saw in the picture of our story, going over those birthday cards of a, that testify to the true love, the disciplining, correcting love that doesn't withhold chastisement when it is due of a mother and father that loves you. And there we are, just children before our Father God, revisiting the chastisement of our life circumstances that we thought was confining and unfair. And we confess, no, Lord, your terms I surrender. I, you know what I need better than I know what I want and need. When you do this, when you begin to repent, when you search your heart and see areas that you need to conform to the, to the honor and the glory of God, those around you will shame your plans. They will say you're wicked. They will say so resentful. They will be protecting their own position when they do that. They will persecute you. But take heart. Verse 6 promises that the Lord is your refuge. Salvation for us is three things in verse 6 and 7 of this psalm. It's a consolation source. It's a worldview definition. And it's a mission statement. A consolation source. The watch care of our Heavenly Father is far more comforting than any affirmation by society, popular opinion, or our peers. Not only that, it's a worldview definition. Oh, that salvation for Israel would come out of Zion when God restores the fortune of His people. Let Jacob rejoice. Let Israel be glad. There's a future orientation to the faith of the psalmist here. He sees that success in the world will ultimately be determined through God's promises in the future. He doesn't buy the lie that they're available if you eat the fruit right now. You can experience all the benefits of God and being God and knowing right and wrong if you transgress His ways. No. They're content to abide by His rules and defer their joy to that moment when He promises in the future it will be acquired in perfection and glory such that it does not dishonor His character, but we will be able to worship and to glorify Him as we're designed in heaven forever. This worldview definition for the believer is one that even though we are downtrodden in this life, our faith and hope are not defined by the terms that the world lives by, but they are in expectation of what lies before, a faith in future vindication for God's glory and the rescue, the salvation, the ultimate manifest salvation of His saints. And then finally, this chapter gives us a mission statement. Oh, that salvation for Israel will come, would come out of Zion when the Lord restores the fortunes of His people. Let Jacob rejoice. Let Israel be glad. Zion, I would just like to comment on that term. Zion is a term that refers to the place of God's choosing and the order of God's choosing where He would make His nature and character manifest to His people. At this time, it would have been the tabernacle, and then soon to be the temple. For us, how is God, what is His vision for making the manifestation of Himself through His means of gospel intervention in a world of sinful depravity known? What is the way that God has chosen to make His glory known, to tell the truth of who He is? You and I, believer, play a big role in that. How shall they know if they do not hear the Word of God? And how... And and where will the hearing be if they're not sent? We see in Romans that God's ordinary means of making His glory known is in part through the testimony of His believers. You living as a Christian, not according to the atheism of the day, 
but the God-affirming lifestyle word and heart is the manifestation and part of Zion today. It's displaying the glory of God by carrying forward the gospel. Thus, the church has a huge role to play in God's mission statement for salvation and hope to reach not just Jacob and Israel as it was confined to at this time, but all the nations for his will and intention to acquire for himself a great harvest of believers who will rally around their Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, confess all atheism as sin, and bow before the one true God. Close your eyes in prayer with me if you would. Dear Heavenly Father, as we see, Lord, in your scriptures, your truth is very clear. And it's only our sin that confuses, muddies, distorts, and tempts us to drift from the pursuit of wisdom. Lord, re-energize, equip, motivate, strengthen, and speak to the hearts of your church that we can be about the quest to see the order and meaning of all things in relationship to your nature and character and not play the fool anymore. Lord, as we... in just a few moments, sing this last song. Let it be an occasion for repentance. There may be some here who, Lord, find in light of your truth today that they have never ultimately bowed the knee of their heart to the Lordship of Christ. Lord, I pray for those that you would convict them and cause them to find a refuge and consolation, not in the ways of the world, but in the truth and righteousness that only Jesus Christ and his death can secure. For those of us who have let compromise, Lord, sink into our heart and we've let ourselves be corrupted by the thinking around us, I pray that your word would be sharp and powerful and quick and discerning so that we can joyfully leave behind at the altar this morning any vestige of our old nature that hampers our testimony to truth. Lord, our prayers that you would be glorified and that we would live in our own life in such a way to find more order and meaning in our day-to-day lifestyle decisions and worship of you in everything, Lord, according to the relationship that you forged with us by the blood of your Son, Jesus Christ. And it is in your name, Lord Jesus, that we pray. Amen.